Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Today, we revisit the recent election cycle and election law and also discuss a bit about what may change in the future. My guests are two returning champions, Alan Steinhorn and Ronald Schwartz. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Bob. Good to be here. Good afternoon, Bob. I'm afraid that one of the stragglers in our group, Jerry Buting, has uh, had to cancel his appearance today, but he has indicated that he will return and offer some of his wisdom. So there will be more airtime for all of us because he's kind of windy sometimes. Very good. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And any legal discussions are not intended to provide legal advice to members of the public who listen in. If you have an individual legal situation, it's imperative that you contact an attorney and express to them the facts of your circumstances so they can give you the best legal advice. So uh, what's new in the election world, Alan? Well, not much. Uh, not much. We had a presidential election. How, was that recent? Was that like yesterday? It was recent. And the most wonderful thing about it is more Americans showed up to vote than in our country's history. And that is one of the things about America. We haven't been able to get a high percentage of voters. And this election we did. But we're having the most unusual election. I actually counted the number of elections I've lived through. And I vaguely remember the 1960 election between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. So I counted 16 elections. You don't remember now, Ike and Adley Stevenson? I, you know, I was a few months old at that point. Okay. So but, you weren't really a political junkie if you weren't keeping track at that age. Well, I probably was, but just didn't know it. Okay. I, I got to see Nixon in the 1960 election. Well, Did you? you're very lucky. Yeah. What, I, what I wanted to say is that never in the history of our country, going back 250 years, have we had a circumstance where the person who appears to have lost the election refuses to concede. And what's important here is that person is the president of the United States. And without a concession, the new administration can't get up to speed to handle the worst pandemic in the last hundred years, as well as an economic crisis that is threatening our country. So it's a remarkable time in American history. And I would suggest to you, this is not normal. Ron, would you agree? There's nothing normal about anything that has to do with our current president. So yes, I agree. So uh, the states submit data that's available publicly to show how many votes go for each side. So the media looks at the data submitted by the states and can determine when a presidential election can be called in each state. And thus far, Mr. Biden appears to have 306 electoral votes and to have perhaps won more than 5 million votes than Mr. Trump. It is not a close election. There is no evidence of fraud. And yet we are in this position where the new administration can't begin their work to help the American people because the last administration is prohibiting it, claiming that they will win the election on fraud claims. I will just add one thing. When you listen to people on TV, they're not under oath. When the lawyers go into court, they are in essence under oath. And if they misrepresent something to a judge, they can be sanctioned, they can even lose their law license. So what we're hearing in court is nothing like what we're hearing in the public. 
I just wanted to comment on one thing you said about it not being a close election. It's not a close election in the popular vote. In fact, it's one of the larger popular vote margins. It appears when they finally finish counting votes in California and New York, which are very populous states with overwhelming majorities for Joe Biden, by the time they finish counting those votes, it's going to be one of the larger popular vote margins in recent history. But having said that, it is a relatively close margin in the Electoral College. And I think it's pointing out that the margins in a few states that decided this election are extremely close. I think there's 11,000 votes in Arizona, 60,000 votes in Pennsylvania, 150,000 votes in Michigan, which is not that close, but only 20,000 votes in Wisconsin. And so that's one of the peculiarities of the Electoral College is that you can have elections where the popular vote margin is really not that close at all, but the Electoral College can be decided really by a few votes in a few states. And so Ron, that's- If I can follow up my comment, I'm using the benchmark established by our uh, current president, who, oh, has absolutely. who has described 306 electoral votes as a landslide, and Mr. Biden won by triple the number of votes that Mr. Trump did. Mr. Trump won by 70,000 votes in three states. Mr. Biden has won by hundreds of thousands of votes in those states. None of them were as close as Wisconsin was and the other two states that he won by. So I don't see it as close. It is much larger a gap in the votes in the Electoral College for Mr. Biden than Mr. Trump. And it's, since Mr. Trump called that a landslide, if Mr. Biden did better, I would assume it's a landslide better. So surely, gentlemen, the law has a solution for all of this, right? Ron, why don't yeah. you take that? <laughs> So there's a move afoot in many states. It's something called the Electoral College Compact. And whether it's constitutional or not is up to some debate. But what the compact says is when enough states representing a majority of votes, the Electoral College, which is 270 electoral votes, when states representing 270 votes ratify the compact, then those states will say that we will give our electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, notwithstanding the vote in our state. That is to say that, for example, if Donald Trump had gotten more popular votes than Joe Biden in this election, if the compact had been in effect, Maryland would have agreed to give its electoral votes to Donald Trump, even though Joe Biden won the state two to one. And so what the Electoral College Compact will do is a way to get around the problem of a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College, which is almost impossible in modern circumstances to obtain. In they did to... it back in the 12th Amendment, though. <laughs> That's right. But a while ago. That was a long, that was, I think, after the contested election of 1800. Now, were but you alive then, Ron? I wasn't alive then, no. But my deep memory tells me that that was a screw up because they didn't have people running as a ticket at the time. So if the vice president got as many votes as the president, then there was a tie in the electoral college because they didn't distinguish between votes for president and votes for vice president. Isn't the reason that these states are moving to align the electoral college with the popular vote due to the fact that our president has been selected in seven of the last eight elections by the minority of the people in this country? Well. No, not in seven, of the, in seven of the last eight elections, the Democratic candidate has won the popular vote. 
That's what I, in, did I misspeak? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Seven of yes. the last eight elections were But in three, in three elections at the Al Gore election and in the Donald Trump election of 2016, a Republican was elected that did not win the popular vote. And so there's been two elections where the winner of the electoral vote was not the winner of the popular vote. I will also point out that the 2004 election, John Kerry lost the popular vote by, I think, 3 million votes to George Bush. But that was a very close election that teetered on maybe less than 100,000 votes in Ohio. So that could have been an election where the Democrat would have won the Electoral College and not the popular vote if John Kerry had prevailed in Ohio. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work to the advantage of Republicans. It depends on what's happening in certain states. The reason why it happens now to the detriment of Democrats is there are many wasted votes in California and New York, two of our populous states, where the Democrat wins by a large margin, whereas the other more populous states that Republicans have tended to win, Florida and Texas are very close. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you have the problem now. So in answer to my prior question, rather than a random walk through history, is there anything legally that can be done to compel Trump to say, no mas, you won Joe Biden, here are the reins of government, here are the meetings that you're supposed to have, here's the funds, that sort of thing for the transition? The simple answer is no. Okay. So I think what we've learned during the Trump administration is that our constitution and our form of government was dependent on people acting in good faith. And what we've learned is that there are no hard and fast laws that would protect the country from a leader who was not acting in good faith. So the problem is we have these norms that when someone loses an election as president, they start giving the reins of power to the incoming president in terms of information, not in decision-making, not in policy-making. But we want our president to enter the office on January 20th with his feet running. We want him to know about the plans to distribute the vaccine. There are hundreds of thousands of people, 250,000 people that have died over the last year from COVID. We want the vaccine to be distributed. Well, making a vaccine and distributing a vaccine are two different things. The new president, the new administration will be responsible for distribution. And what we've learned is that as long as President Trump or whoever is the current occupant decides to obstruct the incoming administration, they can do it. There doesn't seem to be any way around it. Would you agree, Ron? So this is maybe I'm being a little creative here, but the way the transition works is there is official, the head of the General Services Administration, and what the law says, there is a current law that says when the head of the General Services Administration ascertains that one person has won the presidential election, then they need to file that ascertainment and that will start the formal transition process, which allows the incoming administration to have funds to in fact start their transition. It seems to me that ascertainment is a, is a term that potentially one could go to court and compel the head of the General Services Administration to do that ascertainment. And that ascertainment is something different than actually a complete certification of the votes in every jurisdiction. But Ron, we're uh, talking about a six week window and that court action would take three to six weeks at the quickest to resolve. Well, you- I, On January 20th, it's resolved. Well, that's true. The constitution true. provides that his term ends on that date. One of the interesting things is what happens if he doesn't leave? Now, I don't think that's going to be an issue. 
I don't think so either. It's not but, really ammunition. But if you wanted to gain this out, you know, the Constitution of the United States does say that electors, that state legislatures are responsible for determining the matter in which electors are chosen. Now, since the early days of our republic, we have in every state made a determination that the winner of the popular vote in each state will be the person that that winner gets their electors. Right. And now some people are looking to the actual language of the constitution and discussing an application where maybe a legislature doesn't like how the vote happened in their state and that the legislature could appoint their own electors that would be different than the popular winner in that state. That would be sort of a coup d'etat in a certain way. Pennsylvania, that, are you listening? And people are discussing that openly. So would that uh, thwart the will of the people, Ron, if the legislature, say in a Republican state like Pennsylvania, said we don't like the electors? We think that the vote is uncertain and we're picking the electors. Right. I think that that would go to a court. <laughs> and, and a court may, you know, and I understand that the Supreme Court of the United States now has a conservative majority. It is hard for me to believe that even a very conservative court with a six to three conservative majority would say that it was okay for Pennsylvania to appoint its own electors when it's pretty clear that Joe Biden won the state by 60,000 votes. Also wouldn't be that effective since Joe Biden is also the declared winner of Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. So he doesn't really need Pennsylvania ultimately. No, you'd have to, you'd have to override the, the will of the voters in all of those states. Now I will point out to you that in every single one of those states, except for Nevada, the legislatures of those states are controlled by Republicans. Yes. So you'd have to do it in all those states. But I would imagine that if you've got Republican electors in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin to override the election of their voters, then that would be a really a semi-constitutional coup d'etat. That's what I would call it. So not intending to turn this into a historic evaluation of constitutional law, but it seems pretty clear from the creation of the Electoral College and even the 12th Amendment that the founding fathers who are so beloved on many points did not intend to have popular will reign, that they were concerned about the common man voting and running the government, and that they took various measures to ensure the Electoral College was constructed and did not inevitably ordain that popular will would be the will. Well, that's true, Bob. And the Senate, of course, was not directly elected by the voters of each state until early in this century. So we have not had direct election of senators for the first hundred and so many years of the Republic, 120 years. And wasn't the original intent of the Electoral College to be a safeguard in case the people got their votes wrong? That's correct. In other words, if the legislature didn't like the popular vote, they were allowed to overturn it with the Electoral College. That has since changed in that many states have now passed laws requiring their electors to vote in accordance with their state's vote. Well, Alan, I think all states have passed laws requiring electors to vote in accordance with their state's votes. There is- So that was not always the case, which That's meant absolutely that- absolutely true. Which meant that in the late 1700s, early 1800s, when there was slavery, if the 
people voted for a president that the legislature didn't want, they could have chosen to overrule the will of the people by voting the Electoral College however they wanted. That's correct. The only direct election where the popular vote was mandated in the original constitution was the House of Representatives. That was it. So let me throw something else out to you that I wonder if it might not help. And that is in many countries, you have an election and you know the next day in England at 10 Downing Street, if there's a new prime minister, there's a new prime minister. There isn't an interregnum where you know, you're waiting around from election day until January 20th. I wonder if the United States might be better served for having a quicker turnaround on that sort of thing. And I wonder what would be required to bring that about. Well, originally inauguration day was in March. Right. And also the election day has been fixed in November for a very long time. It was fixed. People say, well, why do we vote on a Tuesday in November? Part of it had to do with they wanted to make sure that the harvest was done and the farmers were well, and it was a long trip. A lot of people took them literally weeks or months to get from, you know, wherever they were in the 18th century by, by horse. Right. To Washington. It took a long time to get to Washington and it took a long time to count the votes and get them in, you know, counted in each state. And so that's why Inauguration Day was originally in March. Now, in the Roosevelt, I believe the first Roosevelt administration was the last, 1933, was the last March inauguration. After that, I think by statute, Inauguration Day was changed to January 20th. And I guess the Congress could pass a statute to make the Inauguration Day earlier. However, I think the Inauguration Day actually, it conforms to Congress's terms. The Congress doesn't get sworn in until the beginning of January. It's the next calendar year after the election. I think the new Congress gets sworn in like approximately January 3rd. And then after that Congress is sworn in, that's when the Congress meets in joint session to count the electoral votes, which happens a few days later. So I think that's typically around January 6th, I believe this year. It's January so 6th. There isn't that much time between, and that's yeah. the actual presidential election is when Congress actually meets in joint session and counts the electoral votes. And so the inauguration is a couple weeks after that. I, it would be hard to move it up much earlier than January 20th. Unless you swore in Congress earlier and you got, I mean, I guess I'm just saying that it seems like most nations in the world, when there's an election and a change of governance, there isn't this kind of delay that is causing problems presently. Well, we have a presidential system and that's part of the difference that in England, in the UK, there's a queen and she's the head of state and she's been the head of state since the early 50s. And she doesn't move until she dies. And then there's a new king or a new queen. But the governments can change very quickly. There's an election, then there's a new House of Commons. It convenes very quickly and the prime minister is called. So also the UK and many of these other countries don't have you know 250 year old constitution that was made particularly difficult to amend. So yes, by design. And yeah. also we have a large country with 50 states and the District of Columbia that have to tabulate their votes and certify them. And there are, in this election, 160 million or so that voted. So I don't know that can be done overnight. So the that answer to my original question is that there's nothing that can be done to extricate Trump and make him pass the baton to Biden before January 20th, 2021. Is that the consensus? Other than his desire for a legacy and the history that will follow. Well, I would say theoretically, and I think Alan is right about delays, but one could go into the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia and seek a mandamus injunction 
to make the General Services Administration start the transition. And of course, that might be appealed to the Supreme Court, but that might be a, as Alan says, probably you'd run out the clock by January 20th by the time you could get that done. But You are legally correct though, Ron. I believe that is the only choice they have. That's correct. Just so our audience knows, a mandamus is a court compelling somebody to do something that they are obliged to do. Often it's a higher court obliging a lower court to do something, correct? Yes. So we don't have a vast amount of time. We got into this little constitutional thing, but I think it's a vitally important thing for people to understand. Are you gentlemen working on the assumption that Joe Biden will be the next president? Yes. Yes, I think everybody is. But what is most problematic about what Mr. Trump has done is that over the next four years, as President Biden takes office and tries to govern as the leader of this country, there will be a large amount of people that still believe what President Trump has said, that Joe Biden stole the election, that there was rampant fraud, even though they've not been able to produce any evidence of it, and that therefore, since the election was stolen, there may be people in Congress, Republicans, people from the other side, that won't cooperate with Mr. Biden. And it may be harder for Mr. Biden to accomplish his agenda. Fair enough. Are you foreseeing any significant legal changes by virtue of Joe Biden being president? Ron, why don't you tackle that first? Well, I think much of that depends on the outcome of the two Senate races in Georgia. Okay. going to happen in the first week in January. Right now, the Republicans have won, it looks, appears to be 50 Senate seats. The Democrats have won 48. And there are two seats that have headed under Georgia's law, a candidate has to get a majority of the vote in order to be elected. There was a vacancy in Georgia. And so there was a what's called a jungle primary. Nobody ever thought there would be a majority there, and there wasn't. And so the top two candidates, a Democrat and a Republican, the incumbent Kelly Loeffler and uh, Raphael Warnock is the uh, Democratic challenger. They're going to a runoff. And then in the in the other race, which is a normal Senate race, not a vacancy race, there was a third party candidate, a libertarian that got 2% of the vote or so in a very close Senate race between the Republican David Perdue and the Democrat John Ossoff. Because David Perdue, he beat Ossoff by about a point and a half, but he didn't get 50% of the vote because of the votes of the Libertarian. He got like 49.7%. Yeah, so he has to go to a runoff also. And so the control of the Senate will be determined by those Georgia runoff elections. If the Democrats win both seats, then the vice president, who is also the president of the Senate, when Kamala Harris takes office on January 20th, she will then break the tie in the Senate. Interestingly enough, until January 20th, the Senate would be controlled by the Republicans because Mike Pence will still be vice president. But so you have- assume Kamala Harris will be the vice president, right? Yes, Kamala Harris will be the vice president. Okay. And just so ask at that the question. point, the 51-50 tie breaks the logjam in the, in the Senate, and Chuck Schumer the, will become the majority leader, and the Democrats will control the agenda in the Senate. And un, even though in a very closely divided Senate, there are a few moderate Republicans, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitt Romney Ben Sass, that may be willing to cooperate with the Biden administration on some needed but not that controversial laws. 
bailouts for unemployment benefits for people affected by the coronavirus. How about getting judges appointed? If you don't control the Senate, one thing we've learned is a president can't appoint his own judges. We're talking federal judges right now. Pardon me? We're talking about federal judges, correct? Federal judges, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. That's that's problematic. Supreme Court justices. Does everyone everyone remember Merrick Garland? That's correct. Our audience may not. Could you put Merrick Garland in context, please? About 10 months before the 2016 election, in February of 2016, Justice Anton Scalia suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. At that time, President Obama had the absolute constitutional right to name a replacement Supreme Court justice who he picked was Merrick Garland. He picked an older judge who was a moderate and was thought to be favored by Republicans. Of all the people he could have picked, he picked someone he thought would be acceptable to Republicans. But because the Senate was controlled by Republicans, No president can appoint a judge, whether it's at the trial level in the U.S. District Court or at the top level in the Supreme Court, without the Senate's advice and the important word, consent. So during the last three years of the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell refused to bring up any of the judges that were nominated by Mr. Obama to the Senate floor for approval. When Mr. Trump took office, there were about 150 unfilled vacancies on the district courts and the appellate courts And we learned that if you have the Senate, they can gum up federal appointments to the cabinet. Maybe Joe Biden can't have the people he wants in his cabinet. And President Trump chose to use acting people, which they're allowed to do for nine months. But the country can't move forward if the president and the Senate majority are from different parties and the Senate majority decides we're not gonna approve anything the president wants to do. So these two elections, in Georgia have more importance to the rest of the country than has ever existed in any Senate race. If these two Senate seats go to the Democrats, Mr. Biden will be able to move forward his agenda. If they go to the Republicans, it will be extremely difficult for him to appoint judges, Senate cabinet positions, and all of the laws he wishes to pass, which would require Senate approval. I should point out, Alan, that, uh, and I think it's important to note that Joe Biden, it appears to have won Georgia by a very slim margin, maybe 12,000 votes, but that would be the first time a Democrat has won Georgia since 1992 when Bill Clinton won it, running as a favorite son from the South. It's Uh, very unusual. Yes, that's the last Very unusual to see Georgia go Democrat, Democratic, which is why people are somewhat optimistic that the senatorial candidates have a shot, the Democratic senatorial candidates. So we're going to have to wind up the show, and I'm going to wind it up on what are your predictions in Georgia? Can the Democrats win the seats? Yes or no? I'm going uh, to speculate no. to a split. Ron? I, I think no. All right. Well, this has been Everyday Law, where next time we meet and talk about the election, it'll be in the distant rearview mirror, and we'll talk about what the Biden administration hopes to do with the laws and how it pertains to our audience. I'd like to thank you both for appearing today. Pleasure being here. And I look forward to our next show. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 